and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to have retired Lieutenant Colonel H. Ripley Rawlings IV back this week for the second of a two-part interview. Rip is the co-author of the New York Times best-selling thriller Red Metal, along with Mark Graney. Rip also began a solo series last year starring Marine Corps officer Ty Sasher. The first book is titled Assault by Fire, and today we're talking about the second installment, The Kill Box, which is published by Pinnacle Fiction. This doesn't seem like this occupation is tenable in the long term because in America's peak, troop involvement in Iraq, I think, was around 170,000. And, of course, we had other countries in the coalition as well. And America's population is eight times that of Iraq. So that would be almost a million and a half Russian troops that we'd need to even get something to that was the crap show that was Iraq. Yeah. So in book one, one of the main items that the computer spits out three variables. It says you have a very megalomaniacal president who says, hey, figure out an invasion plan for the United States. And General Kolokov and General Timken, two of these Russian generals who are kind of thrust into the limelight to figure this stuff out, feed a bunch of variables in the computer. And the computer spits out something that says, yeah, it, it is feasible to invade the United States. And I'm not sure the Russians really expected the computer to say, yeah, you could do it. But it comes up with three items that have to happen. The first is a reduction in strategic nuclear arms, at least to a point where America is less of a threat because they believe they could mitigate some strategic nuclear arms by just capturing the facility if they're able to infiltrate the right way, which they do. The second one is a curtailment of the Second Amendment. This is a real thing, but the Russians look at you know, the over 450,000 personally owned firearms, those are long guns alone in the United States, and they think, geez, you know, America has enough to field four or five or six other armies worth of people just in private gun ownership alone. So that happens. That's not a Russian impetus. They kind of wait for that to happen. It does. But the third one is that America has deployed its forces overseas in another kind of quagmire like Iraq and Afghanistan. And so active duty forces are out of the house. So what's left are reserves and National Guard and that kind of thing. So I think from a Russian perspective, they never expected that this plan would work. But all of a sudden, the variables... The second one kind of being the one that they waited for, which is, is there enough public outcry, I guess is the best way to put it, that we curtail the Second Amendment? You mentioned the Third Amendment, which of course is, you know, putting troops in houses, but the Second Amendment is one that is always up for debate. And, you know, from time to time, we do curtail it in one way or another. In the case of the book, the Russians are just waiting for us to say, okay, you know, assault weapons ban, and that's good enough for them because shotguns and hunting rifles are a limited threat compared to people owning kind of heavy-duty assault weapons. So yeah, that's at least the precept for the, the, the concept in the book is the Russians are waiting until they see all these things happen and, and they do happen. At least they're able to, to force or propel some of them to happen. And also, nowadays, it doesn't seem quite so far-fetched that an occupation might be possible because there seems to be way too many Americans who admire Vladimir Putin and the way he runs Russia. I know. I think if I wrote this book 10 years ago, people would have just laughed at it and said, that's not impo- that's not possible. But, you know, like Red Dawn, it's still intriguing. So regardless of whether it's fully possible or not, it's still kind of exciting. What if? Yeah, I think if you look at how many people are enamored with Putin or at least socialism, you do see that there is maybe a backbone that the Russians could count on here in the United States that would say, you know, I don't really trust my current government. And so switching it with something else that looks better to me wouldn't be a bad deal. 
so yeah, there would be a base of those people that I think would certainly gravitate towards anybody. I mean, I've seen this, unfortunately, in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places is that people will gravitate towards power. People gravitate towards anyone that's going to give them what they need. So if you're giving people heating oil and food, then they're generally going to listen to you when you say, well, these are some new rules and laws that you have to abide by. It's, it's sad to say that, but I think a lot of people just in the absence of any authority, if there's nothing besides chaos, and then you, in this case, the Russians are able to provide them with the backbone and basis for basic civil authority and kind of calm and discipline, then they'll say, okay. I mean, so a certain percentage will just follow whoever's in power. So, you know, their invasion isn't complete, meaning in the book, the Russians still have a ways to go. Certainly Tice is a thorn in their side, but, you know, you get the impression that there's a lot of places that aren't pacified yet. In the case of the 10th Mountain Division up in Fort Drum, at least the way I put it in the book is that they're still fighting. You know, some fairly large divisions, 82nd Airborne Division, 101st, a little further out west. So you have some divisions that even if their parent units were sent overseas to fight, as it is in the book, Iran, they're fighting a holding war to kind of keep Iraq from being invaded by Iran. Then people that are left are not a division, but they have some capability and they're not going to give up the ship. So in the case of the kill box, you have the 10th Mountain Division is still fighting and is fighting hard. And the Russians expected to have them pacified because they saw them as just the leftovers of that division. But it turns out they're putting up a good fight. And in this case, in the case of the kill box, the Canadians are providing some arms. I don't want to reveal too many spoilers, but you know, you get the idea that Canada and Mexico are going to help, but are not really willing to jump all the way in because Russia is all of a sudden here. It overwhelms even their ability to realize our neighbors to the north and south would help us if something like this happened. But in the book, I posit that they're going to help us, but they're going to be slow to do it. You know, I know we're focused mostly on the West Virginia theater here, but in general, can you share with us your idea of how the international diplomatic community and also financial markets are reacting to this very extreme circumstance? The way that I have it in the book, you think of our NATO allies as the ones with the biggest military forces to provide support if something like this were to happen. But in a lot of ways, they would have to know what's happening in enough time to do anything. So you look at England kind of just now bringing back aircraft carrier capability. France has given up aircraft carrier capability. So what do they have in the ability to project power? France, Germany, all of our NATO allies rely on strategic airlift and strategic sea lift to provide any of that. So if the Russians surprised us and showed up immediately on our doorstep, I mean, we're talking about Germany and NATO get one day of somewhat warning that America is being attacked, having them mobilize for that kind of a thing and come West would be practically impossible. It's not in their, in their thinking. When I was working in NATO in Europe, any threat towards the America homeland is, is believed to be null and void because they see the, the ocean as that great divide that would prevent you know, one hegemony from attacking another. The regional hegemony being Russia and Europe and our hegemony being the United States in our part of the hemisphere. So having them come into play is a little bit of an afterthought, meaning they would have to assemble forces, find the means to come over. Of course, they would assume that the beaches are now contested with Russian forces. So trying to enter into the United States means you're now going across Russian forces to get there. 
It's not sympathetic airfields. It's not, uh, you know, open beaches. So them putting stuff together would be, as you mentioned, a lot of diplomatic stuff first. Canada and Mexico would be the first to provide or have any capability immediately available to kind of help in the first months of a Russian invasion. So yeah, Tice mentions it in the book. He tells Gunny uh, Dixon, he says, well, you know, we're trying to keep the men and their spirits up. And I told them that France and Germany, you know, are lodging protests. And the Gunny says, I don't think they really give a flying hoot about the fact that someday France will avenge us. We need to know what's going to happen tomorrow. We got to put food in our mouths and bullets in our guns. And uh, France and Germany are not doing that. So at least in our one little battle zone, they know that France and Germany are lodging protests across the pond, but that's not enough. And it has no immediate effect for them. I don't know if this comes up later in the book, but it seems like with such a huge force in order to invade America that they might be leaving the mother country a little undefended. So you're, you're way ahead. As always, <laughs> Stephen, you're, as always, Stephen, you're thinking deeply. I've, it's hard not to write a series like this and, then, and kind of think about what the end games are. How does this eventually end? You know, how long will the series go is one question. I leave that kind of up to editors and publishers, but at least some book someday in the future is what brings about the end to this invasion. What can Germany and England and France actually provide? Well, they provide land forces and obviously they have a straight march into Russia. And when Russia leaves their homeland, I mean, they were waiting for the United States to leave its homeland to fight in another protracted war uh, so that, you know, our kitchen was unguarded. So what leaves Russia unguarded? Well, as they get deeper and deeper into the quagmire of insurgencies that they're dealing with the United States, eventually they send too many forces and the tipping point is they leave their own house unguarded. So yeah, at some point you can imagine in the future, England, Germany, and France will, will say enough is enough. You can't attack a neighbor. And oh, by the way, the United States came to our defense in two very large wars we better go over and help the United States out with something. As you said, it doesn't have to be on American soil. Attacking you know, through Europe and into Russia is probably the way that they would perceive would be the best help for us. In concentrating on this theater in West Virginia, mostly a tactical situation, but I'm guessing at some point this tactical situation plays into the larger strategic implications. So absolutely. I don't want to get too far ahead because at least for book three, you're going to see a larger theater fight. It's nice to get fan mail. And I, I had a fan who's well-connected. He enters in all the sweepstakes and he you know, writes me messages on Facebook and stuff. And so he's deeply into the tactics. He's a former army guy. He said, Rip, I wish you would write 150 pages on what the battle looks like up in 10th Mountain fighting in, in Fort Drum. I was like, 150 refined pages is, is its own book at that point. But I said, you know, wait for book three, because at least conceptually in book three, there's going to be some stuff that happens between Pennsylvania and New York that Tice gets involved in. So we get to see because that fight up in the North is one that is pulling enough Russian forces away that it makes it interesting to hopefully, you know, those guys and gals that are following the Tice Asher series. So yeah, wait for book three. You're going to see some more action. 10th Mountain will get involved and Tice is going to get involved in that as well. I have 80% of the outline for book three. I have about six chapters written for book three. It's just, I have to focus on red metal number two right now. So I'm heavily involved in, in that. Now, Tice being the star of the series, he seems to be fairly protected. He's going to have to survive for quite a few of these books, but we do see a lot of other characters become gravely wounded or even killed in battle. But I think if Trigger died, I think you might have a revolt on your hands. 
<laughs> well, it's funny because Trigger is very popular. It's nice to have people who write me and I, I don't have as huge a fan base as, you know, there's a lot of very big writers out there. I'm not uh, that person, but I do have at least enough that it's encouraging to me as an author to have people that are really enjoying the series. I have one guy who's reread the first book three times and the second book twice already. And, you know, he finds stuff and asks me questions on Facebook. And so it's nice to have that level, but all of them say they love Trigger, which is kind of cool. He's on the cover of the first book. He obviously plays a prominent role in, in book two. I don't want to reveal too much, but he has more action in book three. There's going to be a little section where we just kind of follow dog. And, you know, following dog is a little hard to write because you have to write it from other people's perspective on the dog. I don't want to make him, you know, it'd be cheesy to have him thinking and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That would be a whole different type of book. It'd be an animal book, which I'm, I'm not an author of, but having him do things in book three, I think will be kind of exciting for readers. So he's going to have kind of his own little side story that happens or side mission in book three, but yeah, he's definitely a staple character. Others are getting wounded. We'll see what happens to him in, in book three. Have you heard about this from other readers yet about scorpions? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So we all know where the scorpions come from. And what I told one reader, because there are very few, I don't want to reveal too many of my, I have what are called Easter eggs. You know, you guys, you know what our Easter, Easter eggs are, mm. but I'll define them for listeners. Easter eggs are things in your book that either point to something else or that are intentional reveals about something. Are we going to reveal this Easter egg? Does that show a misapprehension by a character that should be indicative that they don't know as much as they do or? Well, so that's what she does. So obviously what we're talking about is Stasia or Stacy, depending on who, you know, which side she's on is thinking about her father and talks about how her dad, well, was very excited when the American band, the Scorpions showed up in Germany. And in some cases, when you put in a, an Easter egg, you have kind of a red herring attached to it in order to make it more obvious. I mean, I have Easter eggs from all my books and, you know, I would say maybe at least in book one, maybe half of them have been found. I've only had a few people find anything in book two. And it seems to be at least the scorpions is the one that people are finding the quickest. So her misinterpretation of where the band comes from is obviously leading to something else. And I'll leave it at that is that Stasia is a very flawed character. She's obviously an exceedingly good sniper and she's very good at infiltration. So she announces her bona fides in the beginning of book two as she's talking to General Kolokov or being introduced to the reader, she kind of goes through her bona fides and she's able to do sabotage, infiltration, demolitions, and sniping. She loves that her dad loves American pop music, but she grew up mainly overseas. And so she is not a full American. Her mom was part American, part Finnish. And so she is kind of piecing together things and she's not always right. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. It is a red herring attached to an Easter egg, and maybe somebody else can kind of look at it and tell me why she doesn't get it right. She's a, an interesting person. You're literally the one of two people that have, and I've sold thousands of books already, which I'm, I can see my sales as they come up. And uh, you're one of two people who have discovered that item. <laughs> <laughs> so always a pleasure to talk with you about stuff because you find stuff in my books that a lot of other people don't. Well, as many times as I listened to Worldwide Live by the Scorpions back in the summer of 1985. <laughs> yep. Now, you do know they, they, they did visit uh, uh, the Kremlin. They visited Russia. Yeah, so they that, did that, that big, that huge one million person uh, yep. concert. That's right. At the airfield. So, yeah. so Stasia's dad was at the concert, or at least was you know guarding somebody at the concert. So, so why would she get that wrong? And yeah, you have to dig a, a couple 
segments deeper. I mean, it kind of goes, it's, it speaks a lot about her personality and why she's who she is. She's a very bad person. Yeah, we can see that at the very beginning. We know she's up to no good in the introduction. There's there's several scenes in the introduction that are pre-invasion. And right. we see that uh, even though she's at a very high-ranking affair, that she is up to no good at all. She's seducing somebody, so she has no problem using her charms against you know to accomplish the mission. Yeah, and you don't find out what she's doing until maybe a chapter later where we discover that she's, I don't want to spoil too much, she says she's good at demolitions. And she's good at sabotage and infiltration, and she does all three of those in the first couple chapters. Also, there are several characters throughout the course of the book who have very kind of personal, selfish motivations for things. And I think you have a commentary about those, the way their stories unfold throughout the series. What I always liked about, I don't know, movies like Star Wars or very large books like Tom Clancy's uh, Red Storm Rising is that you had side characters who had their own motivations that formed some of the backdrop. And that's true in life. So in Star Wars, for instance, you know, when they're getting ready to go destroy the Death Star, there's guys running around with fuel nozzles and ammunition crates trying to get things prepped and ready. And as you see them do it, these things, they kind of interact with the main characters a little bit. Maybe they're saluting Luke Skywalker as they pull the fuel nozzle out of his aircraft, what kind of fuel they're using or how it works. We don't know, but we believe it more when we see some guy who's trying to make these things happen. And so in the case of the book, I have some A characters and some B characters, even some C characters who show up who have their own motivations. So Mayor Holly is one of the clearest examples. She has her own motivations that I'm not sure the reader is ever going to get full insight to. What is she up to? What is she doing? And so she's a civilian authority. She's been elected by the people. So she's duly elected representative, but she has her own ulterior motives and she interacts with Tice quite regularly. And I don't know that Tice knows what she's up to completely. So she's definitely an example of one of those characters. And she plays in heavily. I don't want to spoil it, but she asks for Tice to loan one of the characters. In this case, his name is Blue. He's a mountain man and he's a sniper. He's a very accomplished sniper in his own right. He's never intended to be a sniper. He's just a very good hunter, but very good hunters obviously make very good snipers. She asks for Tice to loan Blue to her for a couple of days and gives him a lot of food. <laughs> and he and Gunny have a little sidebar where as they're leaving the mayor's office, they have to sweep up a bunch of dirt that they left behind because they brought in muddy boots and the mayor doesn't like that. So they're sweeping up and, and they jump in their Humvee and Gunny looks at Tyson and says, why is she giving us all this food and why does she want to see Blue? And he says, I don't know, but it's a lot of free food. So let's just go with it. So Blue, the mountain man, then has to show up at her office and he's given an assignment by Mayor Holly. You know, the way that she gives him the assignment is she realizes I think Blue is not a very complex man. He's fairly simple, but he has a lot of guts. He's got a lot of patriotism and he's a good person. And so she has to use all three of those things against him to get him to do what she needs him to do. She realizes he is temptable. She realizes that she can twist him to do something if she needs him to do it. And so why is she trying to do those things? I'll leave it up to the reader to kind of figure out why is why is she asking him to do what she asks him to do. We mentioned the fog of war earlier. And yeah. when you're writing a battle scene, and it seems like it would be a very chaotic situation, especially if you don't have the overview of the scene there. Right. How do you balance that sense of chaos without just confusing everybody in the middle of the scene? Having been in quite a few battles myself, I usually start by mapping out the entire battle. 
and then I map it in three dimensions, and then I map it in a fourth dimension. So I draw it out on the, the map. I know what I want to have happen. So it's kind of a matter of how do I get there? And that's where the fourth dimension comes into play. As I drop each of these characters into the battle, in this case, it's a kill box. The kill box is a four-dimensional, it's a three-dimensional plot on the ground, but it's, you know, over time, you have to figure out what you want to have happen to whoever's entered into your kill box. In this case, Tice Asher is put into a kill box. And so I draw the map out. I look at the terrain. In the case of the final battle, which is up near Strasbourg, Virginia, I drive up to Strasbourg and I look around and I look at it from the perspective of somebody who's fought war before and say, well, what would happen if the Russians were here and the Americans were here? Where would the train come in from? Where would planes come in from? Where would you drive in? And what does the battlefield look like and feel like? And then I look at how would it take place over time? That's great. It would be very boring reading. It would look like a small operational war plan. And I think most readers would just turn the page and say, this is boring. But the next step then is to look at the main characters and say, well, what part do they have to play as the battle ebbs and flows back and forth? And you know, obviously we have our, our kind of A and B characters. What do they do as the battle unfolds? So I know the battle, I know the battlefield, and I know what I want to have happen to the battle. So I map it all out. And then I get into the characters' heads and say, okay, well, what are you doing when this ebb or flow happens? And that's the genesis of writing war literature, I guess, battle literature. Now, you mentioned the sequel to Red Metal that you're working on with yeah. Memphian and bestselling author Mark Graney. You also mentioned your third novel. Are you feeling more confident in writing solo? Is it becoming any easier for you to do this process on your own? I, I am. Yeah, I appreciate the question. I'm, I'm more confident writing solo. I have another book pitch also that I'm pitching in January. We'll see how that goes, but it's called Pilar and Paul. It's about one is an Air Force officer, one is an enlisted Marine, and they're kind of loaned over to the CIA to do a special mission. So we'll see how that pitch goes, but fingers crossed, you know, knock on wood that, that the pitch goes well. So I'm, I'm working on a third series as well. I think, you know, writing solo, I am getting more confidence. I think writing, I'm looking very much forward to getting deeper into Red Metal 2 because writing with a partner, I've learned, is a lot of fun. Uh, Mark and I are very simpatico. Uh, we think very similarly. I bring some military background. He obviously is uh, very astute when it comes to spy series. And so writing with a partner is kind of what every writer always wants, which is somebody they can talk about their ideas with. And so writing Red Metal 2 is a lot of fun because Mark and I have written a lot already. We've talked about a lot already. And it's just exciting to hang out with somebody and talk about plots. Anybody who writes anything from, I don't know, short stories or magazine articles to novels and books really enjoys talking about their stuff as I do with you. And so I think writing with somebody for another series is a lot of fun. So I look forward to both. I mean, writing alone, obviously you have no limits, uh, which is its own pro and con. Writing with somebody else, you've got somebody to bounce ideas off of. And uh, you've got somebody that you can partner with and discuss things. Now, since you're our man in West Virginia. Yes, sir. Can you give us some ideas on what's going on? I remember in the early days of the vaccination drives for the COVID-19 vaccines mm -hmm. that West Virginia was held up as an example of the early days of the rollout, that things were going really well there. Yeah. And since then, it hasn't gone as well. And it's one of the, the states with the lowest, if not the lowest vaccination rate. What do you attribute that kind of shift that it worked so well early on, but hasn't yeah. had the, the legs to keep going. You know, it's funny because Big Jim Justice is the governor of West Virginia, and he is like giving away trucks now for like, if you're the 
6,000th person to get your shot, you got a free truck. So he, he's trying everything in his power to get West Virginians to get out there. You know, at one point he was held up as an example, as you mentioned, because he had a 1.1 utilization rate on shots. So, you know, Pfizer and Moderna are sending supposed to be one shot size. And I don't know how many CCs that is, but they always send a little extra because there's always waste and loss. Jim Justice was able to ask all the hospitals to use that 0.1% extra to get extra shots. He went into another phase, maybe six or eight, nine months ago, where surrounding states, you have very populous states around West Virginia that uh, had shots that were going to go bad and they had days to use them. And he said, give them to me and I'll find a use. So what is 1% in Philadelphia is several counties in West Virginia. The population of West Virginia is very small. So the population of Northern Virginia, that's just, you know, the Fairfax County, Arlington, that kind of area uh, is the same as the whole population of West Virginia. So we're talking about, you know, in some cases when you see percentages and say, well, I don't know what it is, 10% of West Virginia is still unvaccinated. That's obviously inaccurate, but whatever the percentage is, we're talking about thousands of people, not millions. So I, I think what's the flaw in getting everybody vaccinated? I don't know. Some of it might be mentality is you have some people who just live up in them, their hills and aren't exposed to anybody. I don't know. Getting in the head of my fellow Virginians or my fellow West Virginians is very difficult. I would say, you know, they're doing the best they can. Also tied in with this is just the extremely bellicose discourse that we have in America right now. It's yeah. just so very polarized. In your experience in the Marine Corps, did were there ever war games or plans for widespread civil disobedience, insurrections, things along those lines? A little bit. I think most American citizens would be pleased to know that American military will follow its duly appointed elected officials. So whichever way you cast your vote, the military will obey the people who are in power. I mean, we'll obey the Constitution first, but if someone comes into power and tells us to to do something, we're going to obey law. So the National Guard is the only one that's legally allowed to get involved in civil affairs. Actual uniformed active duty military forces, unless it's under extreme circumstances, are, are pro- forbidden by law to involve themselves in any civil disobedience. Obviously, that changes when the Russians get involved in the book. But, you know, I think we had war games more for civil disaster, which would inform what we would do in the case of civil disobedience or martial law when it comes to a foreign power that invades. But, I, you know, the United States is, I, and I love the United States, I love our constitution, I love who we are as a people, and I think we're a very stable country. We're a very stable people. And, you know, we're racked with instability in our political climates. We're racked with instability when people discuss politics. But, you know, that's what Democritus intended. I think the Athenians, when they first put together, you know, a working democracy, I mean, you look at the Peloponnesian War and during the middle of a war that was both a civil war and a foreign war at the same time, they still allowed loud discourse. The louder the discourse, in some cases, the better. It, it hurts. It's painful to live through. But I'll never forget sitting next to a Vietnam War veteran in the Pentagon. And I, I don't know what I was moaning about something. And he said, Rip, you have no idea. He said in 1972, maybe it was 71, I sat in an office not far away from the one that we're sitting now. This is, that was his, I, I was serving with him in his second opportunity in the Pentagon. And he said, I came to work one Monday morning and 100 buildings 
were on fire in DC. Obviously, those were civil rights discussions, but he said, you don't know how bad it can get. So I, I think when we live through civil discord, we don't like it, but we have lived through it quite a few times. Heck, we fought a civil war among each other and, and the outcomes were the right outcomes. But I think, you know, the United States always does the right thing in the end. It's just loud, noisy, and, and uncomfortable. It's, it's interesting to note that dictatorships, Russia, China, North Korea, they look at us as inept. They see that democracy as, as a sign of weakness. You know, Democritus and the Athenians believed that it was a sign of strength because that melting pot of people and ideas is really what makes us strong. It, it's a lot of yelling, you know, and that yelling is uncomfortable to people. But uh, some people, when they want their voices to be heard, have to yell. H. Ripley Rawlings IV is the author of The Killbox, which is the second installment in the Tice Asher series, which is published by Pinnacle Fiction. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.